Welcome to Well Beyond Medicine, the Nemours Children's Health Podcast. Each week, we'll explore anything and everything related to the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. I'm your host, Carol Vassar, and now that you're here, let's go. Let's go, oh, oh, well beyond medicine. I go by Brian. I don't go by Dr. Alverson. I'm not just a doctor. I play the violin, sometimes bluegrass fiddle. I play the viola. I like art. I like to draw sometimes when I'm like in a really calm mood. So um, like the things I like to do are a part of who I am. We're all in this together as a family. And I want them to know that I'm going to be approachable. I'm going to be thoughtful about what's going on. They're going to know me. They're going to know each other like brothers and sisters. It's going to be a great family, and it's going to be a great time. That is Dr. Brian Kenneth Alverson in an introductory YouTube video about his approach to the Nemours Pediatric Residency Program, of which he has been the director since September 2022. Brian, as he prefers, came to Nemours from Brown with a fascinating background— a former high school teacher, he spent part of his childhood in Botswana. He is a healthcare clinician, educator, innovator, and patent holder whose approachable manner is winning him fans across the enterprise and further raising the already favorable profile of the Nemours Pediatric Residency Program. We met up with Brian at the Pediatric Academic Society's meeting in Washington, D.C. to talk about his vision for the residency program, his recently granted patent for children undergoing spinal taps, and his leadership in working with the American Academy of Pediatrics to create evidence-based guidelines to diagnose and streamline the care of children with urinary tract infections. With so much to offer and so many talents, what prompted Brian Alverson to focus on becoming a pediatrician? Here's what he had to say. I was a medical student at the University of Pennsylvania and was convinced when I first matriculated to the medical school that I wanted to be a neurologist. And uh, it was during my third year when I was sort of figuring things out that I realized, actually, I really like working with these kids. I'd always enjoyed working with older kids, you know, being a counselor at a music camp, things like that. But um, there was something about pediatric illness that was fascinating to me and being able to help kids who were in distress. And I really enjoyed the process of helping families understand what their child's illness was and how we were going to work towards getting it better. And I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that interaction. So I started getting interested in pediatrics and it was a sort of gradual realization over my medical school years, and then I went on to train in pediatrics. So you have no family members who are doctors, MDs, nurses? None. My, my dad was an anthropologist. Uh, as a kid, I lived in a mud hut in Botswana for two years and herded goats. Uh, so my family is not medically inclined in any way. I'm, I'm, and my mom begged me not to be a doctor. But I did it anyway. Why would she beg you not to be a doctor? I think, I think she was afraid I would catch some strange communicable illness. So that's, that, that's what it was. But, uh, but I was the first in the family to foray into this uh, field, and I'm loving it. 
you spent two years as a child in Botswana. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so my dad was studying the language and culture of the Siswana people, um, and uh, I was there as a kid, uh, tagging along when, for a year when I was three and for a year when I was nine. And um, I think it helped formulate who I was and, and, and my approach towards understanding and being accepting of a, a wide variety of different backgrounds and ideological ideas and um, and working with different people. And I've always loved exploring cultural differences. And I think that was an early experience that drove me towards that. And now you are with Nemours as you oversee the residency program at uh, Nemours Children's Health Delaware. What's your day-to-day role there and what are, what's your strategy for that program? Yeah, so we're in a period that is a remarkable change. I was very fortunate to come down here and step into the very formidable shows of Dr. Stephen Selbst, who held this position for about 22 years. And the job opened, and I saw it. I had been here before as a visiting professor to do some teaching and to give grand rounds, and I, I loved the hospital, and I loved the environment. I loved that beautiful gem of a children's hospital in the middle of this beautiful park. And so I knew it was a great place with great people. And so when the job opened, I emailed my former medical student, Dr. Carly Levy, who is now a uh, a colossal figure in the area of palliative care and children and works at Nemours. And she said, oh, my God, Brian, you have to come. So I came and I I interviewed for the job and everything was amazing. And I said, yeah, I'm going to mix it up. I'm going to, after 17 years at Brown University, I'm going to move down to Nemours. And it's been fabulous. And what is the residency program status right now? Look at the residents around you. Uh, what kind of quality are we attracting? So it's, you know, every year we bring in a new group of residents to start for their three-year voyage through the amazing experience that is Newmore's training program. This year we attracted, I think, a fantastic group of residents. They're remarkably intelligent. Uh, they have incredibly impeccable performance in their medical schools. And I think they're going to continue the, I think, upward trend of our program. Um, You know, every year we seem to get better and better residents, and I feel like we're really going in the right direction. We're training residents to be real leaders in the field. We're training residents to practice empathetic and passionate and accurate, intelligent care for very, very sick children. Nemours is a great place to train because we have the sickest of the sick patients and you see it all and you learn it all. And, it, you know, I think everyone, even people who aren't in medicine, can recognize that you learn really well by doing and by being there and being surrounded by experts in the field. And um, it's just an exquisite and exemplary place to train. So I stepped into a program that was already working incredibly well. We've made a lot of changes this year. Um, we're working towards improving some of the curricular decisions. We're going to build some new tracks in the program. I'm building a global health program where we'll be getting our residents to be traveling abroad and experience what it's like to practice in resource poor areas. We're also building a new track in health equity and primary care. We're working on that right now. That's hopefully going to start next year using our extraordinary clinic at Jessup Street. And we're trying to expand our outreach to a variety of a variety of clinics in the area. So there's a lot of exciting changes, and uh, we're really excited about them. Health equity track, that's very interesting because health equity is a big part of what medicine and healthcare is moving toward these days. What's the importance of the health equity track for your residents? 
So I think it takes a very special kind of pediatrician to wrestle with all the issues around providing health to people who have inadequate or um, unequal resources in our community. And this not only is appealing to people who are interested in exploring further opportunities as underrepresented minorities in medicine, but also it's for all trainees who are interested in uh, exploring how we can use resources in the community to better the health of our children. The health equities track is something we're working, uh, I'm working very closely with Hal Bike in the Jessup Street Clinic. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to build an opportunity for residents to have more close continuity with their patients in that very resource poor area. So they can experience what it's like not only to help with immediate health issues, you know, a sore throat, uh, more serious illness, but also marshal the resources of the community, uh, psychologists, experts in the field, who are able to bring what resources we have in Delaware to improve the health outcomes of these kids. Health equity is incredibly important. I am not aware of another residency program on the East Coast that has a specific health equity track. And that's what we really want to build to, to really put Nemours on the map as a leader in the field. In terms of health equity, social determinants of health, how has the approach of healthcare changed through the course of your career in that area? Yeah, it's interesting in so many different ways, and it's an interplay both of unequal access to healthcare, both from people of a variety of backgrounds and races, but also poverty. And I think what's happening in the United States right now is that regardless of what your political beliefs are, the poor are getting poorer in the United States and resources are getting fewer and healthcare is becoming more expensive. And we have to dovetail the fact that poor families are having less access to incredibly important aspects of their children's health. And society is not lowering the cost of healthcare. And so this is requiring people who are deftly trained in how we can marshal limited resources towards the people who need it the most. And we want to create a cohort of residents who have that ability to really reach out to these poor people and help them and improve the lives of their children, both through reducing toxic stress, improving diet and nutrition, helping them with better vaccination rates, a variety of things. Let's talk about what else you do in the world. And you're doing two really cool projects that you talked to me about in the pre-interview. Let's talk a little bit about each of those. One of them is the Spinal Tap Chair. You have created this Spinal Tap Chair. For anyone who's ever had a, a, an infant or a child have a spinal tap, it is a grueling, painful experience, and a child will wiggle. Talk about the purpose of the chair. Yeah, so the, the company that I founded, and I'm no longer working for, but I'm very proud of it, um, is called Small Tap. And over the last four to five years, I've been developing a, it looks like a little baby massage chair. And it's very comfortable. The babies <laughs> tend to fall asleep. The idea, though, is that you can hold the baby in a secure, safe, upright position for a spinal tap. Classically, we do spinal taps in babies in a lateral position, and it means that there is a higher failure rate and the taps can be bloody, requiring multiple attempts, which is very painful for the baby. I think a lot of listeners might be saying, why would you do a spinal tap in a baby? And really, is it that common? Turns out it's an incredibly common procedure. 
We do hundreds and hundreds of them every year in our own ER. Every baby who has a fever under four weeks of age has a very distinct risk of bacterial meningitis. Undiagnosed bacterial meningitis will result in death, severe brain damage, or deafness. And so rapid diagnosis of the condition is critical to making sure these babies have a good outcome. And so you have to tap really all these babies with fever. So what happens is classically and historically, we've had someone with big hands sort of, it sounds horrible, but almost manhandle the baby into a position. And then the proceduralist will do the spinal tap. And what's challenging about is these babies, especially the ones with meningitis, are profoundly irritable and they don't want to hold still. And I don't, I don't blame them. And so it, what's frustrating about that is you try once, the baby wiggles, you end up getting blood, you have to try again, you try again, and we have to try again because missing the diagnosis could result in very severe problems for the baby. So our ER doctors are awesome, but it's routine to have to try four or five times. And I had just come out of doing this with a baby on my own as a practicing pediatric hospitalist. And I, it occurred to me, man, if only I had a way to hold a baby upright. Now, the reason is, is because when babies are upright, the spinal column is a lot wider and you're much more likely to get it on the first try. So I started working with Ravi DeCruz, who's now a neonatologist in Seattle. But at that point, we were both in Rhode Island. We started building this device and designing it, put a lot of work in it, raised some money, founded a company, got it all together. And what's really cool is a couple of weeks ago, the patent came out. It's my first patent. I think it'll be my last as well. And then the company, the product just hit the market. So um, the hospitals can now buy it. And it's uh, it's really exciting time for to see these babies come out and, and have less pain associated with this, be more comfortable. Uh, you can feed them sugar water during the procedure, which is the same effect of morphine uh, in little babies, not in adults, unfortunately, or life would be much simpler. But it, but uh, I know sugar water's nice now and then. But, uh, but generally speaking, it's, it's a really effective device and it's really exciting and, um, and I'm really proud to have been a part of that process. Clinical results to that? Have you studied how effective it is? Yeah, so there's going to be a prospective randomized controlled trial multi-center. Because I'm the inventor, it would be inappropriate for me to be the lead author on the paper. I've done lots of research, but I don't want to do that one because I want it to be real. And so a wonderful woman up at Toronto Children's is going to be running the study. It's going to be multi-center, and they're going to look at babies who do it in the device and then also the standard way and looking at a number of outcomes. So that's ongoing. The device just came out, so it'll probably take a while to go. But hospitals are already buying it. I think about 100 hospitals have started the purchasing of this. Um, so it's, it's pretty much taking off, and that's, that's very exciting. You are a researcher, you are an author, and you have been tapped by the AAP to be the lead author on AAP guidelines on urinary tract infections in children. You're starting to write that now. Tell us about it. Yeah, this is, this is really, I think, probably going to be, you know, my epitaph if I have one. The, there was a UTI guideline that came out in 2011 that uh, created a, quite a bit of controversy. I think there were a lot of doctors that really liked it, and there were some doctors that didn't like it. And, but it was a real good uh, attempt at trying to find a way to take care of infants and children with urinary tract infections in a cost-effective and health-effective manner. Since that publication, there's been a lot more research that's been done, and it's really time for an update. So the American Academy of Pediatrics granted me, and I'm very grateful to them, the opportunity to lead a team of about 20 physicians around the country who are all 
world experts in urinary tract infections. And we're getting together and having uh, monthly meetings uh, to try and hone down this guideline and figure out the best way to manage these children. It's really tricky, um, and it sounds silly, but um, even making the diagnosis of urinary tract infection in a baby who can't say it hurts when I pee is deceptively challenging. And then knowing which babies you have to worry about underlying abnormalities of the kidney and bladder tract is important. And so we're trying to come up with an evidence-based guideline that'll help streamline the care of these children and improve their long-term outcomes in terms of their renal function. You have some work ahead of you. Yeah, it's, it's a huge project. And, you know, it's really interesting. There's a lot of controversy in a lot of things. And what I love about it, it's a real opportunity to just, you know, start from scratch, get everyone on the same page and unify people. And because everyone has the right spirit in mind. We all want to help these kids. And I think we can get there. And I'm, I'm really excited about the progress we've made. But yeah, we've got probably another year and a half or two years before this paper finally comes out. It's a real process. And the AAP, I'm very grateful to them, is investing a huge amount of money in getting uh, us switched over to a new guideline evidence-based schemata called the um, grade system. And that's what most other large adult guidelines are based off of. And we're the flagship guideline for this new system of evidence-based medicine. And so I think it's going to be a great guideline. I think it's going to make a huge difference for children all over the, all over the world. When I say well beyond medicine, what does that mean to you? You know, I think that wellness is something we all really have to focus on. And I think that, you know, coming out of these years of COVID, you know, there was, there was a real article that was put forth by the Surgeon General. I just read it today. It was about loneliness and how people are lonely right now. And I think we have to start bridging gaps and reaching out to each other and forming a community going forward. And wellness requires a community too. I think we don't live in isolation and we feel sometimes like we're isolated and it's through connections with other people that we get better. So for me, wellness beyond medicine is about treating more than just here's your medical illness, here's the medicine you need to take and then you'll get better. It's about building relationships. It's about building longstanding relationships. It's about building a community so that kids with health problems have people to reach out for and know that they're supported and know that they're loved. And so families who aren't, are in distress have people they know who love them and support them. And, and, and Nemours, we're building that community. I think it's a wonderful place. Dr. Brian Alverson from Nemours Children's Health, Delaware, thank you for being with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well Beyond Medicine. Thanks for listening to our conversation with Dr. Brian Alverson, director of the Nemours Pediatric Residency Program. Have a comment about today's podcast? Perhaps an idea for an upcoming episode? Let us know by leaving a voicemail at NemoursWellBeyond.org. That's NemoursWellBeyond.org. While you're there, check out our other episodes, subscribe to the podcast, and leave a review. Thanks to Che Parker, Cheryl Mann, and Susan Masucci for their help with producing today's podcast episode. Join us next time as we learn to avoid medical misinformation on social media and new neonatal cell therapies being developed down under in Australia. Until then, remember together, we can change children's health for good, well beyond medicine. Let's go!